First Kings chapter 5 is where we're going to start. And I'll make sure to pause plenty so you can turn to the other chapters. Um, you've been keeping up with this if you're doing the reading plan, so you're going to see a couple, couple texts from your reading this week. First Kings 5 uh, says, yeah, I know it's printed in there, so I'll start at verse 2. Solomon sent word to Hiram. You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of Yahweh his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until Yahweh put them under the soles of the feet of his feet. But now Yahweh my God has given me rest on every side. There's neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of Yahweh my God, as Yahweh said to David my father, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Let's jump forward to chapter 6. In the middle of the construction of the temple, verses 11 through 14. Now the word of Yahweh came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, Then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. One final scripture, if you'll jump forward. There's a lot of construction that happens. We're going to go all the way to the end of chapter 7, verse 51. Thus, all the work that King Solomon did on the house of Yahweh was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have little ones, first grade and under, who would like to go for children's worship for uh, a sermon on this text that is appropriate for their age, they can line up with Miss Brittany. If any of them have not been back there before, a parent will want to go with them to get them... uh, signed up with our volunteers and staff. Now, if you've been following along with our daily uh, reading through 1 Kings 1 through 11, what have you been reading this week? A construction report, a very comprehensive uh, construction report. So Solomon is on the throne And he's begun to build a temple for the Lord on the outskirts of Jerusalem. But in the midst of it all, there's a surprising interruption where God speaks to Solomon. Last time he spoke to Solomon, it was in a dream. But this time, Solomon's wide awake. And God appears to Solomon and talks to him. But we need to be very careful and slow in how we read this text and how we interpret this text. Why? Because it sounds almost disturbingly conditional. Look at chapter 6, verses 11 through 15. Maybe you'll see what I mean when I say it sounds disturbingly conditional. Verses 11 through 13. Now the word of Yahweh came to Solomon concerning this house that you're building, if If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people, Israel. 
Evangelical Protestants in particular get a little freaky when scriptures like these pop up because it sounds, it smells like works righteousness. It almost sounds like God's promise to Solomon, that God's faithfulness to Solomon was dependent upon Solomon's righteousness. He's got to do X, Y, and Z before God will do his part. But the gospel of Jesus tells us that God's faithfulness is not dependent on our works at all. The only thing we bring to our salvation is our sin and ruin. So texts like this can leave us thinking, well, maybe God used to operate a little differently back then. Maybe he related to people differently at that time than he does now. And that's a dangerous way of thinking. Because that would argue that God is not consistent. That God doesn't always act the same way out of his character. So if a text tempts us to think that way, we need to pause and make sure we've got our ducks in a row. So we're going to take our time. How do we reckon with these sticky verses? Well, for starters, let's remember who Solomon is. Solomon's not just any guy. He's the king of Israel. And as such, he is the covenantal head of God's people. And in this text, God is making a point about covenant leaders and the importance of covenant leaders' obedience or lack thereof. And here's the point. I think you can take to the bank. I know you can take to the bank. That the obedience and failure of covenant leaders does impact the people of God and the people under their influence. What is this covenant leader, this covenant head? What what are we talking about? I'm talking about pastors. I'm talking about elders. I'm talking about fathers and mothers. These are people who are put in a place of authority in the body of Christ. If we're talking about Israel, we'd be talking about prophets, priests, and kings. People like Solomon are covenant heads. But these are people who hold office, who hold authority over the people of God. And what this text tells us is that their obedience and their failures necessarily impacts the people under their leadership. It necessarily impacts the people of God, either positively or negatively. And you've seen this before. When pastors, elders, or church leaders fail, what does it do to the church? The failure inevitably has an impact on that church. When a pastor's caught in sin, how does that affect his family? It wreaks havoc on their family. But on the other hand, When a pastor, an elder, a father, a mother, when they're faithful, when they're serving Christ well, what a blessing that is to those under their care. What a blessing that is to their family. So he's telling us something here about people in positions of authority in the body of Christ, our obedience and failure matters. But how does the book end? First and second Kings are just two volumes of one work. It was too big for one scroll, so they had to split it into two. That's the only reason. It's called First Kings and Second Kings. It's one book. How does the story end? The story begins with Solomon. The story begins with rest and peace and everything looking great in Israel. And, and he builds a temple, but how does the story end? Disaster. The temple 
that's built in these chapters is burned to the ground then. Why? Because Solomon failed. He failed to obey God as he ought, and it wreaked havoc on the people under his care. God's people suffered. We all know that's true. We've seen it with our own eyes. But that's not all that's being communicated in this text. In fact, I think that the prevailing notion in our text is this, that while leadership failures do have consequences, they don't unravel God's redemptive work in the world. So yes, there are consequences when covenant leaders fail, it it impacts the body of Christ, it impacts their family, but it doesn't unravel what God is doing. So God tells Solomon two different things in this text when he appears to Solomon. And we're going to start with the second one first. Why? Because the second thing that he tells Solomon is not a part of the conditional statement. What he says, his second statement to Solomon has no relationship to whether Solomon obeys or not. So look at verse 13. Our translators have done a good job. They put a period there and an and, separating it from that conditional clause. Verse 13 says, And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. This is an unconditional promise from God. Solomon, whatever you do, whether you obey me or not, I'm not going to abandon my people. I'm not going to abandon my promise. And what was his promise? What was God's intention? To live with them to live among them, to be God with them, to be in relationship with them. Kids, when God made Adam and Eve, where did he put them? Come on, kids. I I know y'all like to talk. What's that? That's right. In the Garden of Eden, were there other beings that lived in the Garden too? What all lived in the Garden with Adam and Eve? Animals lived there. That's right. What else lived there with Adam and Eve? JJ? God lived there. So when God made us, where did God want to live? With us. That's right. So we were made to know God, uh, to love God, to enjoy God, to be in his presence. What happened, though, kids? Did they stay living with God? No. Why? They disobeyed. That's right. Whoever said that? I don't know who it was, but I heard a little voice say, because they disobeyed. Because we sinned. We were cut off from that relationship with God. So later in the story, when Israel is enslaved in Egypt, God reiterated a promise, a desire to Moses. When he was sending Moses to rescue them, this is what he said. He said, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I'm just going to, as an aside, I love this text. I feel like this, I read this text to you guys more than any others. This is like one of those references I probably need to memorize. We probably should all memorize because this promise that he makes to Moses just echoes the whole Bible. I'm getting ahead of myself. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. What was God doing? He wasn't freeing them from slavery to be independent. He wasn't freeing them from slavery so that they could be whatever. He said, I'm taking you to myself. 
I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. He desired to be in relationship with him. This is God's intention through Israel to restore the relationship between God and humanity. It was lost in the garden, but he called Israel to himself so that he could call the nations to himself. God wants to live with you, with humanity, starting with Israel. And then through Israel, he intends to restore his relationship with the nations. That's going to happen whether Solomon obeys or not. It doesn't matter what Solomon does. God is determined to live among his people so that he will live among the people of all the nations. We'll come back to that next week. What's the first thing, though, that God tells Solomon? So that's the the unconditional statement in verse 13. Well, what about this conditional statement in verse 12? What's up with that? Let's go back to it. Concerning this house that you're building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. So God says, concerning the temple, I spoke to David, your father. I told your dad something. And if you obey me, Solomon, I'm going to establish that same word with you that I told your father. And the, the language here is that of covenant renewal. God is saying to Solomon, I made a promise to your dad. David was faithful to me, so I kept it. And if you'll be faithful to me, Solomon, I'm going to keep that same promise to you. So it it raises the question, then, what did God promise David? If that's what's being affirmed to him here. Well, to see that, we've got to go backwards. So take your Bibles and turn back a, a book to 2 Samuel chapter 7. You're going to want to turn there. It's kind of long. 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you follow along, keep your eyes engaged. It's easier for your eyes and ears. Otherwise, you get lost in the weeds. I don't like to use bookmarks, so I have to turn with you guys. So 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. So let's see this promise that God made to Solomon's dad. Now when the king, this is David, when the king lived in his house... And Yahweh had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I live in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. But that same night the word of Yahweh came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says Yahweh, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why did you not build me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, And have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name. Like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And will plant them. So that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. As formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. 
Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This sounds a little different from what the Lord said to Solomon. In 1 Kings, if you read it wrong, it starts to seem, seem like Solomon has to be obedient in every way for God to keep his promises to him. But that's not what God says to David here. Look again at verses 13 to 16, because here's the promise given to David about Solomon. Verses 13 through 16. He, Solomon, shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, what will I do? I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, the king before David, whom I put away from before you, in your house, David, in your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God makes several promises to David in 2 Samuel 7 that extend to Solomon. What are the promises? Here we go. Number one, that Solomon would build the temple. He said this is going to happen. Second, he promised that David's kingship would last forever. That means that throne is going to, it's always going to stand. And third, that Yahweh's relationship with Solomon would be like a father and son disciplining him, but never ceasing to love him. And these promises that God gave to David, they're unconditional. There's no if-then like we see in 1 Kings. More importantly, one of these promises, that of an enduring throne, lays the groundwork of the coming Messiah. The eternal kingship of David is ultimately fulfilled in the birth of Jesus in the line of David. But back to 1 Kings. What does it mean in in 1 Kings when God says that he will establish or renew this word, these promises, to Solomon contingent upon his obedience? Let's look at it again. That's where I got to flip back. Let's read very carefully verse 12 in chapter 6. In fact, let's read it together. Let's read it together. Ready? Here we go. Concerning this house that you are building. We'll just pause there. Concerning this house that you are building. Which promise is this referring to? Is it referring to the kingship of David? No. Thank you, Ian. Is it talking about Yahweh's relationship with Solomon? No. It's talking about the house. Solomon would build the temple. So concerning that little part of the promise... He goes on. You don't have to keep reading. I just want to really reiterate that opening phrase. Concerning this house that you're building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in, and then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. What 
part of the promises to David are being discussed. He says at the beginning of the verse, concerning this house, if you'll walk in my statutes. So what's going to happen if Solomon fails to keep God's commands? Well, he tells us. If Solomon doesn't obey God, is he going to cut Solomon off? No. He's going to discipline him. He loves him. He's never going to leave. He left Saul, but he's not going to leave Solomon. So if Solomon sins, he's going to discipline him and bring him back. He's going to treat him like a son. So the point of this conditional statement to Solomon, what's actually on the line? What happens if Solomon disobeys? Here's the main force of what God is saying. Solomon, if you obey, I will establish this word with you about the temple. But if you don't obey, you may build it, but it will not last. It will be destroyed. That's what's on the line in this conditional statement. If Solomon sins, God's still going to love him. If Solomon sins, he's going to discipline him and bring him back. If Solomon sins, the throne of David will last. But if Solomon sins, the temple will be destroyed. So, while David's throne and Solomon's relationship with God could not change, the presence of the temple in Jerusalem was conditional based upon the obedience of Israel's king. So that's what's on the line, whether the temple's going to continue to stand. And what does that tell us about the temple? It tells us that the Jerusalem temple is a secondary matter. The temple in Jerusalem is not essential to God's redemptive work in the end game. Again, what was God committed to? God was committed to living among his people, he says in verse 13. I will live among my people. And for that matter, he's, he desires to live among all humanity. He's also committed to the enduring kingship of David's line. And he was committed to Solomon individually as his son. But the temple, secondary, temporary non-essential to the plan, and its continued establishment would depend upon Solomon's obedience and the kings after him. Now, if you're not a a theologian, uh, you might not care (laughs) about this at all. Why go to great lengths to think through this conditional clause? Because it actually has remarkable relevance for you and for me. And here's the point. God's redemption of the world is rooted in his promises, not our performance. Did Solomon's sin matter? Yes, definitely. He's the king of Israel. And if he fails, the temple's going to be burned to the ground, and that's exactly what happens. But does his failure make God's plan unravel? Not even close. God's plan to redeem his people, God's plan to live among humanity, once again, Solomon couldn't mess it up. And if Solomon can't mess it up, neither can you. It's impossible for us to mess up God's plan, but we don't act that way, do we? How much pressure we put on ourselves thinking that our actions or our effectiveness is somehow the deciding factor in the spiritual health of our family, our friends, and our neighbors. How we labor restlessly and legalistically, lest we feel responsible for the spiritual woe of another person or our family or our church. Remember what we said a few weeks back. We need to focus 
less on the destination and more on the journey. And what that means is when we wake up in the morning, the thing we should really be paying attention to is, am I being faithful today? Am I obeying God today? Am I listening to God today? Do what he tells you today as a leader, as a person who has influence, but don't twist that into thinking that God's whole plan depends upon you. And if you mess it up in one little way, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. Don't twist it into thinking that somehow God will bear more fruit if you just do a little bit more or if you just do a little bit better. No, God is bringing about the redemption of all things. God is the one making all things right. One day, God will live with men and women, boys and girls, and all glory will go to him because he did it. Not me, not you. But in the process, he calls us to obey. He does use us to accomplish his work. But if you are loving others, if you are speaking the truth of the gospel to others, if you are seeking God's kingdom... If you're doing all these out of a sense of guilt or anxious fear, if you're thinking and and feeling that that way, take yourself down a notch. It ain't you. God's redemption of the world is rooted in his promises, not in our performance. And if there's anybody in this room that needs to hear this most clearly, it's me. Our church's progress for God's kingdom is all God's work, not mine, not our sessions, not any of ours. Any spiritual growth that happens in my wife's life or my kids' lives or in your lives, that's not because of me. It's because of him. If I have been faithful in any way as a husband or a father or a pastor, that's God's work too. I can't take credit for that. But pastors and elders and parents and people in positions of spiritual authority, we regularly start to think that it's our actions, that it's our efforts that are the primary means of God redeeming the world. And it's simply not true. Christ is the one means of redemption. He saves, we serve. He commands, we obey. We plant, we water, but God gives the increase. So the throne of David, that's eternal. Jesus is king forever, not contingent upon Solomon's obedience or mine. Solomon's relationship with God, that's permanent, not contingent upon Solomon's obedience. The temple, though, eh, well, that would be affected (laughs) by Solomon's obedience or lack thereof. But if that's the case, if the temple is secondary, then why in the world did you read all these verses this week? Why did it go to such crazy lengths to talk about all the little things that were made and fashioned and put in the temple? If it's secondary, why mention it at all? Well, it may be secondary to God's overall redemption, but it's not nothing. In fact, the next two Sundays, we're going to be talking about the temple. The temple's very important. It's just secondary in the, in the big game. But second, he says this in this text because Solomon's obedience matters. It's not primary to the work that God's doing in the world, but his obedience matters, and ours does too. So, laws of God, like this command in 1 Kings chapter 6, and when you look in other parts of the Bible, laws of God are meant to drive us to our knees in faith, repentance, and desperation. When you read something like this where God's telling Solomon your actions have consequences, how are we supposed to respond? First, with faith. 
When Solomon heard this message from God, what's the first thing that he should have done and probably the first thing that he did do? He didn't have 2 Samuel. It probably wasn't written yet for him to go and see the promise that was made to his father. So he should have run to Nathan the prophet who was there and said, Nathan, will you tell me the promise God just told me if, if there are promises given to my dad? Can you remind me of what those promises are? That's what faith is. Faith is remembering what God promised in the past, seeing how God has continued to be faithful to those promises, and trusting he's just going to keep doing the same thing because he always acts consistently out of his character. Likewise, when the laws of God expose our past sins and our present weakness, we need to remember the promises that God has been making from the beginning. Solomon could have panicked when he heard this. How will I ever obey God? He could have been angry at God. Why would you require this of me? Or he can remember the promises of God. And what promise has he been making since Genesis 3? Kids, we just talked about it earlier. Sin has separated us from God. Sin has brought ruin to the world. But God cares. In Genesis 3, like the third chapter of the book, God steps in and he shows Adam that he will provide the blood sacrifice necessary to make up for our sins, to restore us, to forgive us, to make us new. That same promise we see reiterated in the temple. What's going to happen in the temple? Anybody want to guess? I'll wait. What happens in the temple? Thank you very much, Rich. Sacrifices are going to happen. Yet another signpost that there's going to be a sacrifice that comes that washes us of sin so that we can live with God again. So when I hear God's law telling me, you are not as you ought to be. You are weak. You have failed. What am I to do? Remember what came before. Adam failed to keep God's law and he provided a sacrifice. Solomon failed to keep God's law. But God gave a sacrifice. He's confirmed that promise time and time and time and time again, most clearly and finally in the death and resurrection of the sinless Son of God. So God's desire, God's promise, God's commitment to you, when you just make a royal mess of things, or when you read the law and it exposes your sin, what's God trying to tell you? Remember the promise. Yes, you're broken. Yes, you're sinful. That's why I sent my Son. So live your life In light of that. So when the law shows me my past failures and my present weakness, I need to believe the promise. In Christ, I'm forgiven. In Christ, Solomon was forgiven. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit, I know that I can live the life to which he's called me. I don't have to continue in failure. I don't have to continue in that weakness. And from that place of faith, from that place of trusting the promise, we can repent. So if we believe God's promises, the immediate response should be to repent, that is to flee from the temptation of sin satisfaction to the communion, to communion with God. Pastors fail and forget to put blanks and points. It happens. When we believe the good news, we're to repent. Repentance is not clearly spelled out in the text. It's kind of a hobby horse of mine, so I'll keep this part brief. But let's think about how repentance fills, uh, fits into this whole discussion. If you are living in unrepentant sin, what does that mean for your relationship with God? Well, God's redemptive work is rooted in his promises, not my performance. So if, like Solomon, 
you are living in unrepentant sin. Whether you know or not, if you're living in sin, what happens to your relationship with God? You're still his child. You're still loved because your relationship with him is rooted in his promises, not your performance. Even when you're sinning, God loves you and he delights in you because of the righteousness of Christ. But because you're his child and he loves you, he's going to discipline you. Just like he said about Solomon. He wasn't going to let him just continue sinning. No, he's going to discipline him and bring him back. But to what ends? To bring him to himself. Repentance is fleeing from sin and from sin satisfaction to the satisfaction of knowing God. Repentance is not going from sin to doing better. It's going from sin to him who is our great satisfaction, to him who is our great joy. Jesus is the prize. Communion with God is the prize. Repentance is rejecting sin and its satisfaction for the satisfaction of knowing God. Finding greater satisfaction in him than in any other thing. Of course, I can't move on without drawing attention to one idea. Solomon failed as a king. David failed as a king. Why? Because they were sinners. You're going to fail too. If you hadn't sinned yet today, you will. It's just the life we live. We are not Jesus. Because Jesus was the perfectly obedient Davidic king, we now have grounds on which to flee to God seeking restoration and forgiveness. This is why we can run back to God. This is why we can find restoration. This is why we can find our joy and satisfaction in him because a sinless Davidic king has died on our behalf. All of God's promises in the Old Testament are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So because King Jesus obeyed, your sins can be forgiven. Because King Jesus obeyed, you can be set free from the power of sin in your life. Because the sinless Savior died and was raised again to rule, you can not only be forgiven and restored to the Father, but you can live your whole life in communion with God. You can live in relationship with God, God with us as things were intended originally. So, when scriptures like these expose our insufficiency as kingdom leaders, you read this text and you think, man, as a dad, I've really failed. As a mom, I've really brought a mess. As a pastor, as an elder, I've really screwed things up. What does it call us to do? To flee to the all-sufficiency of King Jesus. Find your sufficiency in him. Believe in him, not yourself. Repent, celebrate the good news, and expect him to bring his kingdom through your life because he's alive. Scriptures like these call us and Solomon to faith, to remembering God's promises, to repentance, and finally, to desperation. If we are to live out God's kingdom purposes, we must do that on our knees before God. If we're going to succeed as parents, as leaders, as pastors, elders, whatever role of authority you have, we've got to do it on our knees before God. Solomon would eventually fail. The temple would be burned to the ground. Israel's kingdom would be torn in two. How could we expect anything different from us? Why would we not expect the same thing to happen in our homes, in our church, if we're going to fail too? Well, remember, God's redemption of the world is rooted in his promises, not your performance. 
So don't get confused about what impact you may or may not have with your obedience or failure. And go to your knees. Pray constantly for God to do his work in you. Pray that God would make you faithful. Pray that God would humble you, that he would show you your sin and bring you to repentance daily. Pray for God to give you wisdom. Pray for God to do a work in you that would diminish your name but exalt the name of Jesus. Ask God to make much of Christ, the obedient one, through the transformation of a sinner like you and me. God's redemption of the world is rooted in his promises, not our performance. So does your obedience and failure matter? Yes. It impacts the people and places around you. It impacts the people of God. There are consequences for our actions, but our failures don't make God's plan fall apart. And our success is not the thing that's holding God's plan together. If you are in Christ if he has chosen you from before the beginning of time and set his mark on you, he's gonna let, not going to let you continue in sin. You weren't made for sin. In fact, he wants you to enjoy a life of deep communion in humble repentance before him, confident and righteous in Christ alone. So if you see your sin, if you read the law, you read the word, and you see your weakness, your failure, remember the promise. Flee from sin's satisfaction to the beauty, sufficiency, and satisfaction of Jesus. Be on your knees and wait. Wait. He will show his glory in you and through you in a way that will bring all the glory to himself and none to you. Why? Because it's not about our performance. His work in the world is rooted in his promises, in his faithfulness, in his love, not in our performance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the freedom and the weight of texts like these. Our choices matter. Our actions matter. And yet, your actions supersede them all. Your plan moves forward with or without us. But Lord, this is the joy that we can partner with you in your work of leading and loving like Jesus. So I pray for the men, women, boys, and girls who are here. I pray especially for those who have been called and put in a place of authority over your people. I pray for myself. I pray for our elders. I pray also for the dads and moms who are here. And I pray for a special work in their lives because our failure and our obedience has such an impact. Lord, I pray for the leaders of the church here in St. Tammany and around the world that you would protect us from sin and that we would find in Christ our greatest satisfaction. But Lord, we, we revel in the good news that the story is already written, that the way the story ends has, has been set in stone because Christ has been raised from the dead, because he is seated on the throne and all things are working together for good. So Lord, we trust you. Help us to find rest even as we are challenged by this text. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.